No, he did. He did. He, wait, he was wait, saying wait. some I stuff and I couldn't hear him. Something. Say elephant. 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 I didn't hear you say elephant. Elephant. I elephant. heard a blur, elephant. so I assume elephant. you said elephant, elephant, and I saw your lips move. Is this... It's fine. It's, it's turned all up up. all the way. Look, it registers it. Yeah, it's registering and, and, on and, there. And we can hear Jesse. Why can't we hear each other? Right, Say wait. elephant. Say elephant. 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 I don't think you can. He- elephant, mother. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Not Your Father's Movies. I'm Vito. I'm Mike. And I'm Jesse, and we are the Dad Fathers coming at you with some big dad energy. As always, and now we're doing our second episode of our Not Your Grandfather's Courtroom movie series. It is 1966's A Man for All Seasons. I'm pretty pumped about this. So pumped, I couldn't even get the year out. How are you guys feeling? I'm feeling good. It's it's autumn right now, but I also feel like I'd feel good if it was winter or spring or, or summer. I mean, you're a man in all of them. How about I'm, you, I'm Jesse? A man in all of them. Wow, I I feel like it's not really autumn because I live in Phoenix and it's still a hundred degrees outside. So well, I feel it's hot. Hundred degrees, still. and the Earth has rotated a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, so this is uh, this is 1966. This is. This movie here is the winner of Best Picture that year. Um, it was directed by Fred Zinneman. Uh, previously, he's known for, uh, well, after this, he did The Day of the Jackal. Um, pretty famous one. I'm a pretty big fan of that one. Um, and prior to this, he had done uh, movies like Oklahoma, exclamation mark, uh, From Here to Eternity, and High Noon, which is probably, I think, probably the movie that everyone knows about the most out of those that collection of films. Everyone knows High Noon, I think, pretty right. I think so. Yeah. Day of the Jackal it's the I've got a funny one. relationship with. Um, my mom, uh, so that was a movie that my mom remembered like loving when she was younger, like she'd watch it with my dad or something. And uh, when I was 14, she said, oh, this is a great, like exciting sort of war movie. And she put it on because it was PG. She was like, I, I kind of remember <laughs> it being like a little adult, but I think, you know, it's PG. I can show it to my kids. It's like the Romeo and Juliet that they everyone puts on. It's like, oh, wait. Yeah. This was a different sort of rating system. Things were different. There was a lot of uh, adult themes. And P- PG is like, PG is like, is this like Toy Story or is this something almost R? Like- yeah, it, no, it's R. Like that movie is R today for sure. Absolutely. Uh, but about High Noon, what what do you think, Jesse? That's like the only one I've heard of on the list. So yeah, it's the most well known. Yeah, yeah, okay. it, it's it's one I think I've seen probably probably. 30, 40 times on cable. But it's it's written by uh, Robert Bolt based on his play. This play has been adapted at least four times that I could find uh, for a movie, including twice with R- Vanessa Redgrave, which is really funny. She plays uh, Anne Boleyn in this version. Um, and then in the other one that she did, she was actually uh, Lady Moore, Lady Alice Moore. And in that one, she co-starred in it with Charlton Heston um, as Ooh. Thomas Moore. He he apparently was really like lobbying hard to get into this one, right? Yes. He he loved oh, this really? this play. He thought it was yeah. one of the most important ones, important plays ever. And he like he he performed it for years off of Broadway in, in different 
different shows for like 20 years before he finally made the movie again. Yeah. And, and actually he directed it, um, yeah. which is kind wow. of amazing. Do you guys, was this like a big play at the time? Because like, I I've only ever heard of the movie, the man for all seasons and not really heard much else, even that it was a play until I was looking it up for this podcast. That's, that's my sense of it. But I, I think maybe that when the movie wins, so the, the play did win a, a best Tony award. It's one of, and it wins the best Tony and then also wins best picture. And I think it's only one of four movies to do that. Um, the other three are My Fair Lady, The Sound of Music and Amadeus. So I, I feel like for all of those, I mean, those are, those three are fairly well known as huge productions, but the fact that it wins a best play, a Tony award would seem to suggest that it had a fairly good reputation. It was fairly well known. Yeah. Do, do yeah. you have anything socially? Like? I, I don't, I don't really know. I've never actually read it myself. Um, my wife taught it when she was teaching high school, uh, high school English. Mm. Um, so like some places, I think it's like coming back around, but it's one of those, those things that I think it went away for a while, but I, it wasn't around when I was doing high school. I know that. Yeah, I actually read it as a part of my um, my high school studies, but we'll get to that in nostalgia. So, uh, but another crazy thing about Robert Bolt when I was looking him up is uh, he's mostly, you know, known for writing this movie, or maybe it's The Mission with Robert De Niro, or maybe it's The Bounty, which was the Mutiny on the Bounty remake with Mel Gibson and Anthony Hopkins, or maybe it's for writing Dr. Zhivago, or maybe it's for writing Lawrence of Arabia, you know, <laughs> like this guy's got a pretty wow. incredible pedigree. <laughs> wow, that's insane. Um, so there's that, uh, this version of Man for All Seasons stars, uh, Paul Schofield, legendary, uh, stage actor, wasn't in too many movies, but every time he was, he was, I, I always loved seeing him. He wins the best actor for this movie. And then Wendy Hiller, Leo McKern, Robert Shaw, and Orson Welles, um, sort of ran out the main cast with Orson Welles coming in as Cardinal Wolsey for, I don't know, five minutes, right? Yeah. Not much longer. Do you know, he, he said that he directed, he, he pushed um, Fred Zinnemann out of the room whenever he was in a scene. He said he directed every single scene that he was in by himself. That, that sounds like an Orson That's, Welles sounds movement. like Orson <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I wonder if like Marlon Brando looked around and was like, who am I going to be like? Yeah. I'm he was like, like, oh, Orson Welles. Orson Welles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, can do worse. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So Leo McKern is uh, playing Cromwell. Wendy Hiller's playing Lady Alice Moore. Robert Shaw playing King Henry. It's funny having to name these sorts of people because actually Robert Shaw and Orson Welles make up probably a combined 15 minutes of screen time yeah. in this like hour, 45 minute movie, but they, they have such huge star power. But then Susanna York plays his daughter, Nigel Davenport plays the, new, the Duke of Norfolk, and then a very, very young John Hurt as uh, Richard Rich, the legendary Sir John Hurt, rest in peace. And then kind of rounding out just these uh, last things I wanted to mention is cinematography is by Ted Moore who has done seven James Bond movies by my account, Whoa. <laughs> um, including Dr. No from Russia with love and Thunderball. Oh my gosh. Yeah. No, like that makes sense. Yeah. It, it's got the slow sort of intensity or slow burn. And, and he uses a lot of mm. uh, really brightly lit stuff. Even the night scenes are really brightly lit. Yeah. I, I, I really appreciate that attention, that kind of naturalism at, well, combined with that theatricality so that you always know kind of what time it is by what the sun is doing, what your lighting is telling you. And there's so many exterior shots that by the time you move inside, the lighting becomes more and more filtered. It actually becomes a very important part of, of telling how long the time has passed. I, I thought he did you a know, really wonderful job. Fun fact. 
Uh, he signed up for the movie because he was told it was going to be a Bond for all seasons, not a man for all seasons. <laughs> he was really confused. I, in my report that I read, he was very confused at, at the amount of clothes everyone was wearing. <laughs> <laughs> so the shoulder pads was the weirdest thing. He was like, these are, these are not normal. They're so big. <laughs> They're huge. I kind of want all my clothes to be like that. Like, you want like that's goofy. how... That's how a man for all seasons really dresses. Because I mean, they're ready for all seasons. It, it, you're ready to sweat <laughs> like a dog in the summer. You're ready to sweat like a dog in the autumn. You're ready to be really cold in the winter and then sweat like a dog in the spring. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, those are the only clothes that they have. They got they got to take a shower somehow. It's <laughs> 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 horrifying. Uh-uh. So we were going to test out a new a new segment called uh, Historical Asides with Mike, but after that trial run, we're not doing that. <laughs> but uh, anyway, for this episode, uh, we're actually going to switch things up a little bit because we actually are doing a couple of new restructuring a little bit further on. So I'm actually going to take over uh, responsibility of the summary here. It's a very kind of plot heavy movie, but actually in terms of what the story is doing, it's very simple. The king wants heirs and his wife is barren. The Catholic Church will not allow him the divorce that he wants, and his newly elected chancellor, Thomas More, will not speak on the matter, nor allow his feeling to be known. As the noose kind of tightens around the country and on Thomas, King Henry splits from the Catholic Church, sets himself as head of the Church of England, and everyone wants to know what Thomas More thinks. Gradually, everything is taken from him, titles, positions, friends, eventually his freedom. As he is standing trial for his silence which is supposed treasonous, and is condemned to death, he finally unburdens his mind regarding the position of England, the Catholic Church, and the quote-unquote great matter of the king. So like I said, that's a pretty general summary of what's going on here. Um, but I think that as we as we go forward, we're going to unpack this movie a little bit more. Um, Jesse, do you want to sort of set some of the stage for us, uh, sort of surrounding where we're at in history? Yeah. After I saw this movie, I got pretty into you know early 16th 15th century england because i kind of wanted to figure out more about henry the eighth and who he was where he comes from and why he's making the decisions that he's making and when i started digging i discovered the hundred years war which is a brutal war the last you know for a hundred years and totally drains the kingdom and sends it into a sort of anarchy and this sort of anarchy that everybody is feeling um, there are two main factions that come into play, two main families who both have some lineage from a king in the past. Uh, they are the Lancasters and the Yorks. If that sounds slightly familiar, uh, you <laughs> might have heard something like that from the hit show Game of Thrones, where I, I'm, I'm pretty uh, sure you're Lannister... just talking about Game of Thrones. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I basically am. In fact, while researching this, I find out that Jay or G. George R. R. Martin, not J. R. R. Tolkien. You know, I, I hear that the <laughs> R. R. stands for Rolkin, Rolkin. So it's George Rolkin, <laughs> Rolkin, Martin. Just like Tolkien, Rolkin, Rolkin, Tolkien. <laughs> Wikipedia agrees with you, so we're good. <laughs> Rolkin, Rolkin. George Rolkin, um, Rolkin, <laughs> Martin. George Martin, Martin. <laughs> Martin Rolkin. No, no, Rolkin, no, no we're done. We're done. I call it stop. This nonsense has <laughs> to end. <laughs> this chicanery. This insanity. So, all right. All right. Yeah, I'll stop. So Martin Tolkien, he wanted to write a book about, <laughs> about the War of the Roses. And 
he almost made a historical fiction novel and instead decided to add dragons and almost made like a symbolic novel of like animals fighting over each other. Anyway, basically to say that imagine Game of Thrones actually happened in history with kings like assassinating one another, having these crazy civil wars, bludgeoning other kings over the head in towers and constantly like usurping the throne over and over again. That kind of comes to a head with Richard III, who ends up killing his nephews in a supering of the throne. Uh, and he was well, um, of allegedly. the House of York. <laughs> allegedly. Allegedly killed allegedly. his nephews. Come on. Allegedly. You gotta the controversy. They, they amazingly just disappeared one day, and no one really knows what happened to them. But that was such a horrible crime, because everybody kind of thought that that's what was going on. So that allowed this guy named Henry Tudor to come into the picture, and he is a Lancaster. Henry Tudor comes with an army, defeats Richard III, and comes to the throne. And when he does, he takes for a bride Elizabeth York. And Henry Tudor and Elizabeth York have two sons, Arthur and Henry, with the earlier Henry becoming Henry VIII. So this, I think, is important because it kind of bears to mind what Henry's lineage is. All of England has just come out of this massive years-long battle with tons of bloodshed every time there's a switch in monarchies. And for the first time since Henry V, I think about 80 years earlier, when Henry VIII comes into power, it's bloodless. Nobody dies. Everybody is singing Henry's praises because he's known as a virtuous character, including Sir Thomas More, who writes like, who gives him like this book just extolling Henry's praises. Everybody's just so happy for the peace that he's finally brought. And he's, of course, married to Catherine, and they, and he's expecting an heir because he has a unique bloodline. He has the bloodline that is bringing peace right now. And then he's married for many years. They get married in 1509. Uh, he starts seeing Anne Boleyn in 1526. He's, like, in his mid to late 30s, right? And okay. Catherine is a little older, and she's already miscarried numerous times. She's born him one child, Mary, who will later become Mary Tudor, also known as Bloody Mary. <laughs> and right. he still doesn't have a son to peacefully pass on this kingdom to. Wait, re really quick, just a note that's mentioned in, in the movie, and, and maybe uh, maybe you can maybe you know more about this. I, I don't. Isn't Catherine also his dead brother's wife as well? Yes. So his older brother, okay. Arthur, Married her when he was 15, and then Arthur dies a year later, supposedly of testicular cancer. Oh, wow. And But it's also <laughs> kind of important, too. They uh, Catherine claims that she and Arthur never consummated their marriage, correct? Oh, I didn't know that. I actually don't know about that part. Um, I, I think I think that's that's the Deuteronomy verse that they're referring to in this. It, that was the why the Catholic Church oh. at the time allowed that union to go through was because <clears throat> she claimed that she was still a virgin. The marriage had never been consummated, and so even till the end of her days, she uh, she would always call Henry her only husband, um, her dear true lord and husband. Even while he yeah. sent her off into exile, as and the only title he gave her was the Dowager Widower. Yeah, <clears throat> the Dowager. Yeah, he never. He, she's the only one he didn't kill, right? Yeah, she died. She died, she died by herself. Yeah. Although some people claim that she was poisoned. Okay. Well, um, yeah. I mean, who wasn't? And they say that that Henry rejoiced in a matter unbefitting to a king upon her death. Sounds right. I mean, I I imagine that would be the case. Uh, he didn't really have a lot of love for her because he, uh, 
has all of his love letters to Anne Boleyn show, he really did have a thing going for her. In fact, there's this one letter where he tells her that she will be to him the mistress of all mistresses. He will not touch another woman so that way he can be with <laughs> his mistress. <laughs> yeah, it's a little insane. So anyway, and then after, you know, after the events of the movie, you know, he basically makes a sort of theocracy where he is sort of a god king, like dispensing God's wisdom to the people writing these great works, creating like these theologies for his new church. And that takes like about 12 years, 12 years after the movie, and he dies at the age of 55. And this all takes place uh, in his late 40s. So like, yeah, for like 12, 15 years, he's just like, he marries five more women and he actually puts Thomas Cromwell to death because he doesn't like the look of one of the wives that she got, uh, that he got him. <laughs> uh, there's a kind of an explicit leg, Cromwell. That's a dancer's leg. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Yeah. And then he just burns both Catholics and Protestants at stakes. Well, Protestants at stakes because they're heretics. And then Catholics, he just draws in quarters because they're all traitors. So basically, oh, he just goes insane. But at that point, they're heretics too, right? I, like, Because he's I, like head of the church in England or something. I don't really right? think he considers them heretics. He just considers, because he believes most of that, except the Pope part, which, so they're following the Pope, not him. And since he is the head oh, of the church and okay. head of the state, then you can't be against the king, right? If, if you're against the head of your church, yeah. who's also king, you're a traitor now. So right. anyway, tons of blood uh. loss, and he eventually dies kind of a crazy tire, crazy fat tyrant, rather than the fit, virtuous one that he started out as, which I think kind of draws out Thomas More's idea that if you're breaking oaths, like changing what you believe so frequently, then you're you're losing yourself in your hands, like you're holding water and it's slipping through the cracks. And Henry VIII actually becomes that man, totally losing himself. Take an oath. You're taking yourself in your hands. If you spread them just a little, you'll run through like water. You needn't hope to find yourself. You needn't hope to find yourself. (laughs) Oh, it's such a good line. Yeah. Well, that's that's incredible history. Yeah. 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 So that's my brief little recap on uh, Henry VIII, who the dude was and the crazy tyrant that he becomes. That's really cool. I didn't know most of that stuff. I know so little. That period of history is just like such a blur in my mind. I know a lot of crazy stuff happened. People took stuff really seriously. Um, <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people died. A lot of people died. Not to <laughs> not to say you know it wasn't worth it, but I, I yeah. it's just crazy. It's crazy to think about. Like imagine that happening in our time. Like uh, oh, it's going to happen next year. The, the, oh, that's the, that's the next season. Yeah, the of... next the next way that this whole thing goes is we stop rioting, and then it turns into burning on stakes and drawing and quartering, and and our, our leaders having a bunch of wives. Dude, that's I'm so next, excited for that next. for that season. Yeah, it's going to yeah, be nuts. It'll be, great. It'll be fun. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> the writers for the season uh, 2021 they got a lot stacked up for them. What if it'll be like Game of Thrones? You know. Just fall flat. Look, look, (laughs) if next year an awful world leader that everyone hates is not shot with a crossbow on the toilet, I'm going to be really (laughs) upset. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So much awaits us, guys. So much. much. Well, um, I think, thank you, Jesse, for that, uh, all that context. I think it actually, uh, you're right, it does add a lot of grounding. If there's some good loam, we can now plant the seeds of our podcast and let it grow. We're sort of in the spring merging into the summer if we're going to do seasons are we still men 
Uh, last I checked. I, I think I think that's it. <laughs> same here. I mean, I'm just asking you guys. I don't know. <laughs> well, uh, maybe moving into uh, nostalgia, uh, Jesse, would you like to start, or do you uh, want sure. else to go? Yeah. No. So this was kind of a movie that was around in my household. I, I think I didn't really watch it till I was in my teens, or maybe like early teens, more of like a, a middle schooler, and I. <sighs> I liked it. I, I like all the talking because at that point, I it wasn't an action movie, right? It's just a talking movie. It's one of those movies where you really have to follow along like this political state, which were all new ideas for me as, as a middle schooler. Like it's not that I hadn't heard of them. I'd never gone too in depth into them and frankly wasn't interested. But one thing that really struck me at the time was um, I remember thinking like this is Thomas Moore, and he is the the good guy of this movie, right? But I remember being kind of taken aback by him. I remember thinking, like, this isn't what good people could possibly look like. He's so conniving, right? He's not straightforward. I remember that kind of freaking me out a little bit. I guess as a kid, like, this is my first introduction to what it might be to be a good man in a very weird, crazy world. Because he's um, not he's and, not John Wayne. He's not your typical hero. He's he's heroic yeah. in a very realistic way. And that's really different. Like, I, I can't really yeah. think of another character. Sorry, to, I'm just trying to rhyme with, rhyme with your point here. I yeah. can't think of another character that I also thought was good in a movie that was based on a historical figure that matched Thomas More as well as Abraham Lincoln and Lincoln. Yeah, like that's. Because we always think of, we're, we're led mm-hmm. to believe through the American educational system that, you know, we have the picture in the history book of Lincoln splitting rails, because that's what he did when he was trying to pay for his lawyer in education. And he was walking uphill right. both ways to town in the snow, even in yeah. the middle of the summer when it was 100 degrees. And it's like this real foundational, like American work ethic idea. But that almost makes you think that he was kind of a dummy. Because, like, why are you working so hard with your hands, dude? Like, yeah. what? why don't we actually talk about the statesman part of yeah. things? Yeah. And yeah. on this rewatch, I, I had sort of gotten that kind of image. And then hearing you talk about it was like, oh, yeah, maybe maybe Lincoln is the closest one, the first one we've seen since then of a heroic person who can seem conniving, but is really just using his position and his intelligence in the most effective way to get what he thinks needs to be done done. Yeah. I'm thinking about like other statesmen and stuff in, in, in movies, at least before this. And the only thing that I can think of, and I'm sure there's other stuff out there, but the only thing I can think of is Mr. Smith goes to Washington. Right. Where it's kind of like the opposite of Thomas More. I mean, he's, uh, he's pretty much, he's a yeah. yokel and uh, yeah, like he succeeds because he's like straightforward and honest. And he's like, Hey, I'm this guy. And like, we should do good things. It, and... it was Frank Capra's vision of what we've always wanted yeah. a statesman to be, but it's yeah. really great. They're not. Like... Yeah. N- none of them are. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's cool, Jesse. But so, yeah, that that's like your idea of, um, or that was the first time you'd seen a statesman like this or someone like this as the hero. I think even to this day, this still might be the only movie I've really seen like this. I guess you said there, there's Lincoln. I I think Sir Thomas More is just so unquestionably kind of in the right here. Uh, whereas, like, even Lincoln, y- you could, like, poke some holes, although you could say, like, he really is a dude who's trying to do the best that he can, and just like Sir Thomas More, and I, th- I think that's right. I'm, I'm, I'm going to give you a hard no there. That, that's a hard no for me, dog. <laughs> we did the Emancipation <laughs> Proclamation. <laughs> <laughs> 
I, I do. I don't want to talk about Lincoln. I'm not here to talk. About <laughs> it's true. Well, that, we'll talk about that in another I mean, one. I mean, segueing over into a conversation about exactly what was going on in the Civil War and who meant what and was arguing for what for which Union or Confederacy. Yeah, will get us bogged down in a really long time when we're actually oh, talking right. about the the aftermath of dynastic wars. <laughs> yeah, way simpler stuff. War of the Roses and and all that fun stuff. Oh but, yeah, all that fun stuff. <laughs> easier than Civil War. That, that's only to say that Lincoln was clearly a great dude. I just didn't agree with some of his means or whatever. And and it seems like Sir Thomas More had like the same sort of thing going for him. Uh, like yeah, like yeah. I think he's in the right, but it's just it's really hard to sort of wrap around everything that he that he's saying and doing and like justify all of it. If you're not lying, then how are you? But you're staying silent on things, and it sure seems like you are a, like. And in a lot of ways, I think I agree with Cromwell. There are a lot of moments where I agree with Cromwell in this movie. Wow. <laughs> yeah. All right. This is like Vito thinking Corel Deville is the good guy. I mean, like yeah. post oversimplification. <laughs> no, uh, no, no, although, no. <laughs> uh, although, I never do that. Uh, maybe we can get into this after the nostalgia piece, but yeah. like, I do want to get into like how what the arguments and what Cromwell is thinking. But like, yeah, Cromwell's more of a simpleton. That's sort of how I was thinking of it when I first watched it. And in some ways, I still have that part of me with me when I watch it again. But yeah, when I watch it again, I love it. Um, how about you, Mike? What was your nostalgia for this movie? Yeah, I mean, I actually, I've got a lot of nostalgia with it. It's it's kind of weird. It's not exactly like, oh, you know, I watched this all the time as a kid. But I actually have seen it a lot of times. And I was watching it and the opening scene like starts rolling and you've got Woolsey, Archbishop Woolsey or Cardinal Woolsey Cardinal. signing the letter. He He stamps it with his seal and it gets taken out by the... Uh, by the runner, which is like, it's kind of, it's really cool to see that because that's how it was. They had a runner who runs up to the boat and the boat takes him up the Thames to Chelsea, is it? Yes. It's Chelsea. And it's just this, it's really a long opening, long opening credits. It's got the beautiful music. And like, as weird as it sounds, like watching this movie is kind of like pulling on my stretchy pants. I'm just like, <laughs> oh yeah, this one. I know this one so well. So I... I don't know if I ever actually watched it with him, but I think of my grandfather a lot with this movie. My grandfather was a lawyer and, and was like thinking about it with this. A lot of sort of the father figures in my life were lawyers, which is, you know, interesting. So they all love this movie because it's very much, very much about law and about, you know, serving God in the tangles of your mind, which is such a, I love that line. Yeah. And so with that, I think of my grandfather a lot. I think that the first time I saw it, I was, you know, like you, somewhere in the early teens, somewhere between eight and 12. Um, I watched it at their old family home in San Francisco. And like, I remember the, 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 the living room where we watched it. And my grandfather was his, his, uh, his tankard of Heineken uh, <laughs> watching this movie. It, it's, it's just like all of these sort of sensory images come back to me. <clears throat> And yeah, it's just, it's just really enjoyable to watch. I know the beats really well. So then my grandfather and grandmother, they moved down here. My, my grandfather passed away in 2005, I, I think, but my grandmother, um, sort of slowly, you know, she, she got sicker as time went by. We ended up living with her for a while and uh, it, it was really wonderful to have that time with her. But, uh, you know, as she got less and less mobile, less and less talkative. Um, but one of the things she always loved to do was watch movies. And there were like three or four movies from around this time that she just loved to watch and rewatch. 
And she was really hard of hearing. So we would always have the subtitles on right. when we watched it. And this was one of them. And so just like all of the lines, I, I have sort of a visceral fami- familiarity with. And like you, Jesse, this was the first time that I'd seen something that was like it at all. It was, uh, you know, very, this guy who's being conniving almost, and mm-hmm. he's trying to avoid getting into trouble. He doesn't want to make a stand. He doesn't want to be a martyr. He doesn't want to be that guy. So yeah, I mean, a lot, a lot of awesome memories around it. What about you, Vito? I think I, I'm going to have to uh, echo a lot of what you said, um, what both of you are saying. I, I think maybe this is just a commonality with this movie when we come at it when we're teenagers or even just young children. It, and we're, it's so such a different portrayal of masculinity, different portrayal of personhood just yeah. in general. And there's all these foils that, that Thomas plays off of. I did see this in high school for the first time. I, I watched it in conjunction with reading the play. I don't remember which one I came to first, but I definitely stuck with the movie a lot longer than I did with the play. I think the movie is, is a lot more concise. There's a lot of scenes a lot of differences between the play and the movie you can look up that are, are really interesting to see how Robert Bolt reformed this story and using almost all of the original lines and just move them around between different scenes and sometimes in, in other characters' mouths. So watching that sort of juxtaposition there, um, like there, there's a couple characters in the play that are not here. Like the the bar scene between uh, Cromwell and Richard Rich yeah, yeah. actually takes place is much longer takes place in two different locations and oh. originally involves another character who comes and goes oh. during the scene. Really? And all he does is he eliminates the character, cuts a few lines and then moves those lines in between Rich and Cromwell. Huh. It's very delicate screenwriting. And, and I, I read this book in and watched the movie for a dramatic writing class, like a creative writing screenwriting class. And it really stuck with me for that because it really is, this is not only how you adapt something, but how you create true drama. Just like with what we talked about with 12 Angry Men, uh, this is a real founding for me when I think about drama, how things go. It's something I judge a lot of things against. Yeah. And there are very few writers that have this sort of grasp that Robert Bolt does. I think maybe right now, maybe the closest person to it might be Aaron Sorkin, but Bolt always wrote with such a clarity and with such a a knowingness that seemed very wise. And sometimes Sorkin can, as much as I love him, he's he's probably our greatest living screenwriter. He's sometimes way up his own ass. Hmm. <laughs> and that kind of shows. <laughs> yeah, Bolt's not up yeah. his own ass, probably. No, I mean, it doesn't come across. Yeah, it doesn't come across in this, for sure. Can I, can uh, well, I just say, when, yeah, I, was go, looking, go ahead. when go I was ahead. looking up... When I was looking up stuff about Thomas More, like speaking of this writing, some of these things that he says in the courtroom, he actually said in the courtroom yes. in real life because we still have these transcripts. Um, of course, specifically yeah. Like, like that part at the very end where he says, and as much, my lord, as this indictment is grounded upon me, upon me an act of parliament directly repugnant to the laws of God and his holy church, the supreme government by which, and then that proceeds, it is therefore in law among Christian men insufficient to charge any Christian man. Like, yeah, that's that's a full Thomas More quote right there. Really? Um, that's cool. Yeah. Wait, is that final, like, nevertheless? Like, when he roars, like, he's he's played it so, like, quietly the whole yes. time. Then he roars the, nevertheless! And everyone's, yeah. it's just like this shot to the heart. Did, did, did no. he say that? Please. So, Please. I, I didn't <laughs> see that. And I don't think, okay. he, and I don't think he did. Because, historically speaking, that quote that I just read you is slightly yeah. different. 
Um, oh, in fact, okay. it's ag- the way it actually plays out is slightly more dramatic in the real courtroom. Um, oh, really? Because yeah. So remember when he says uh, it? It was a custom when I was Lord Chancellor or whatever that the defendant should speak his mind. Yeah, yeah. And he says something very similar, but he says, "My Lord, when I was toward the law, the manner in such a case was to ask the prisoner before judgment why judgment should not be given against him." So what he does is then present that case as a case for why the guilty verdict doesn't apply to him. He's not he's not simply stating his mind. He's giving a legal argument why he yeah. should not be called guilty. In fact, this argument is so persuasive that uh, there are nine judges sitting up there. I think I could be wrong. I'm sure all the history nuts that listen to this could could let me know how wrong. Yeah. I am. Please um, do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Actually, an email. I love that. But they they stand aghast and there's silence in the court for a long period of time. And then uh, the head judge doesn't even say anything. So he looks to another judge, Justice Fitzjames, who gives the most BS reason for condemning him that I've ever heard. And he says, my Lord's all, I must confess that if the act of parliament is not unlawful, then it is not the indictment in my conscience insufficient. Yeah, he puts in like even, a I can't even like, put in that here. What does that, mean? <laughs> what does that mean? It's like, like triple negatives. <laughs> like, yeah, he's saying like if this is like calling the act of parliament a, a hypothetical, and then saying what would happen. I, I don't know. It's really convoluted, but whatever it you, was. You know what that? You know what that like, sounds all right, like? All right, guys, guilty, guilty. That was good enough. That was good <laughs> enough. like you know, yeah. you know what that sounds like is like you turn to the intern and you're like, <laughs> what do you think? And the guy's like, uh. <laughs> this thing i don't know <laughs> and everyone's like yeah. that's enough i it think henry wants him dead <laughs> it's like yeah uh, that's right henry wants him dead you're dead we all remember <laughs> anyway that's hank. that's not to take hank. away King from the hank. movie at all hank. I, I think that if this had been in the movie i almost wouldn't believe it so i'm kind of glad they didn't put it in that yeah. just to go back to your point yeah this writing is brilliant and i love the way that they they captured this this super witty more who is always has some sort of comeback for everything that's ever given to him. It, I love it. It's so it's, good. It's a little nuts how it, in, in a different actor's hands, I think this could seem snarky. This He mm-hmm. could actually kind of seem like a jerk. And yeah. he doesn't. And these lines actually have weight and they have meaning and they have, they, they actually have bearing on the current conflict. It's not just like, something that a witty side character in a Marvel movie would spit out. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cause they could seem like that, but they're actually, they're actual solid lines of dialogue. And that's really when I was uh, thinking about where I, where I came to this from, I spent uh, many, many nights um, up late. I had a copy of the screenplay and a copy of the play. And I was going through sort of beat by beat for all you screenplay heads out there doing the Robert McKee story sort of treatment on it, breaking everything down for emotion and, and going back and forth through the whole thing. It was really, really fun, and it, it was an, it was such an enjoyable exercise. And you know, a movie is really good when you can rip it apart to its bare essentials, put it back together, and you can still enjoy just watching it on a just an everyday kind of level. There's nothing in it that sticks in your craw, and there's nothing in this one that that really bothers me. There's not like one line where I go, "Oh, well, I wish that was a little bit different." It it just seems yeah. to flow really beautifully. The only real thing that I would say coming at it after so long is that I did get up to go to the bathroom and get some popcorn while the opening credits played. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> really long. <laughs> uh, I, I did just sort of leave that one be because I've, I've seen it so many times and it's beautiful and it's wonderful. And Ted does a great job shooting it. Good job, Ted, everyone. Great, Congratulations, great job, Ted. Ted. You shot the shit out of those reads. Um, I just am not interested in watching them. Before. 
<laughs> but yeah, that that's my nostalgia for it is that this is this that's is in my part. top twenty favorite movies of all time. That's awesome. Um, yeah, for sure. To, Definitely top twenty. Loved yeah. pieces yeah. and sure. seen yeah. it a, a million times. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I wanted to see, can I give a little bit of historical context to where this is all taking place? Like when he's writing it. So Jesse, Jesse talked about the historical context, um, but I was actually looking into kind of what was going on when this was coming out. And there's a lot of stuff. There's a lot going on in the sixties sure. and the fifties when this is written and uh, when this is actually coming out that I think is really important to understanding, understanding the movie. And it actually kind of help me to understand why the people that sort of were, were really impactful in my life loved it as much as they did on top of the fact that, you know, it, it was really meaningful to them from their profession and from, from, you know, they're, they're men of faith. It was, so it was meaningful to them from that perspective, but also historically, I think it's, it was really impactful. So I, I'm not as familiar about uh, with the play. I, I never read the play myself and I'm not really as familiar with those times, but I know it was about 10 years after world war two ended. And uh, I think it's kind of interesting because I, I feel like in America, Sir Thomas More is um, he's really a major foil for JFK, uh, who, who comes out and he says, you know, I'm not going to let my religion define my politics. And, uh, you know, you can say that in a democracy and it's a lot more <laughs> it's a lot, in some ways, it's a lot more complicated to be in a democracy and be a politician in a democracy than it is in a, a monarchy. In some ways. Yeah. And, and even even more so, you know, I mean, talking yeah. about two systems of government here, I mean, so yeah. that, that monarchy, while, while a traditional monarchy, they still had, it's, you know, they still had yeah. courts, you had lords, you had representatives from the people all yeah. over. And, but it was really about that single figurehead. Yeah. And then for us with the Democratic Republic, um, we have this trifold system of government. No one thing is supposed to be bigger than the other. Yeah. They are radically radically on purpose different kinds of, of governing systems yeah um, but but it, it is still the government that that ours arises out of yes, and yes. it's representative in sort of a like a seed um, yes. in seminal way right it's the seed of the u.s and yeah. even there thomas thomas and henry like the kings and queens did consider themselves to a degree representative of their people i mean the king sure. was still absolute well, uh, in the U.S., I, I, JFK, he, he's a representative. He's fully representative of the people who elect him. So you, you can say that, but it, it does also seem pretty contrasting, right? Like, to, yeah. uh, what, what, what's what your issue, says. Jesse? But it's also like they're not just representing the people. They are representing God to the people as well. They're like oh, yeah. monarchs and kings are generally known as like God's anointed to some degree. Yes. Like, that's why their bloodline is special. Yeah, that I think that's really cool. And then, you know, coming forward to when it's made in, uh, in, in the 60s, there's a lot going on in the 60s. It's a crazy time. You know, the Vietnam War has been going on for a while and people are not best pleased with it anymore. JFK's, you know, been, been shot. Come and gone. <laughs> he's, come, he's come and gone. LBJ is president. Um, we're still in Vietnam. And uh, there's a whole lot of stuff going on. So, so that's a big, a big thing. There's a lot there, but there's also a lot of like race issues going on right now too. Sure. In 65, before this film comes out, Malcolm X is shot. Mm -hmm. We've got the Watts riots in August and, and the Selma March happens in March. So, I mean, huge, huge, th these massive things. A lot of civil unrest. The Voting yeah. Rights Act gets passed in 65. And that's just... For a reminder, that's the the act that guarantees that African Americans can vote. 
What's interesting is that just before the Watts riots, (laughs) um, I don't know, I'm not enough of the student of history to have any sort of knowledge of them to say like, these things happened. And so that's huge. But what also starts happening in 65 from the Vietnam War perspective is that there's already been some protests and stuff, but we're getting people being conscientious objectors. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's really huge. There's not, I don't think there's anyone really famous who has stepped down yet. Or, or said, I'm not going to go to war and ripped up their draft cards. But then in 66, when this comes out, Muhammad Ali, who I think is still Cassius Clay at the time, I might be wrong about that. No, I'm not too clear. He rips up his draft card and he says, I will not go to war. And he's this huge guy. He's sure. won the heavyweight title fairly recently. In 67, he gets his heavyweight title stripped from him, which is really interesting because like, that's what happens in this movie. Yeah. Thomas More, I mean, he gives up his uh, his role as chancellor. I mean, there's a under mounting uh, pressure, under mounting. Pressure. Uh, yeah, under a ton of pressure. And I mean, there's a difference between being chancellor of England and being heavyweight champion. But I mean, he of was course. more than that. He was more than that. He, he yeah. was really kind of the, uh, the soul of a large number of people. Yeah, he, he was representative. It's yeah. this massive representation. And I think that that's really like timely. It's right in the middle of all that going on. Um, in 66, I've got a note here, gas costs 32 cents, which is amazing. <laughs> 32 cents a gallon. Um, I mean, like there's a lot. So so like those are like, it, it's civil unrest for sure. There's also some kind of amazing stuff going on. Like in 65, the Beatles release Help. In 60... Do you need somebody? Uh, yeah. Help! Yeah, help, I need somebody. <laughs> Not just anybody? But then in 67, Sgt. Peppers comes out. Like that's a, I, it, it's never been in my mind that that's a two year difference. Yeah. That they went from help to Sgt. Peppers. That's crazy. And there's like a four year difference between when they just want to hold your hand. Yeah. And then Lucy's in the sky. Like, yeah. It's like, what? <laughs> in 66. Okay. This is just a crazy year for pop culture. Uh, we've got Star Trek debuting and the original Batman series starring Adam West debuts in 66. Wow. Ronald Reagan becomes governor of California. Um, and he's at the award, the awards show when this wins. Um, did, Sounds did, of Silence is released. And most importantly of all, David Schwimmer, yeah. Gordon Ramsay, Adam Sandler, and Mike Tyson are all born this year. Wow. So like there's there's a lot of stuff going on. But, uh, oh, yeah, no, another another really big thing. Sorry, I'm, I'm, reading, I'm reading through my notes here. Because I'm like, I'm reading through this, like, this is crazy. This is all sort of, like, baseline stuff for us. I, I mean, we were all born in the 90s. This sure. is stuff that's 30 years before we exist. The Miranda rights came into being on June 13th, 1966. Right. Like, that's a wow. baseline thing to us, right? Like, I mean, can you I've imagine? Seen, I've seen enough cop shows. Yeah. Wait, wait, I want to do my impression of the pre-Miranda rights. <laughs> You're arrested. Why? I don't got to tell you. Come on. But I didn't do it. Yeah, you did. That's going to be used against you. <laughs> it sure seems like you did. You got the knife. <laughs> um, that's my that's yeah. my impression of an arresting officer. It's perfect. I think yeah. that's it. I think that's what happened. Yeah. yeah. That, 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 and then it, this is, I think, the single craziest thing to me uh, of all is that in 67, Loving versus Virginia goes to the Supreme Court. Oh, Loving, yeah. Loving versus Virginia yeah. is... Uh, mm-hmm. The case, the Supreme Court case, which is just wild, mm-hmm. that finally allowed interracial marriage, mm-hmm. which is how did that have to go to the Supreme Court? I mean, I, I made I made is that throwaway wild? joke like a minute ago about passing so that yeah. African-American people have a vote. Yeah. And I made that joke because it was like, yeah, how progressive. That's amazing. That's amazing that post 1950, we're like, yeah, I I guess black people matter like yeah. in, in some in some way. Yeah. Wow. 
I, I guess you could vote. I, yeah. You, wait, you want to marry who? You I guess so. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I, well, yeah. I mean, a lot of people apparently didn't want them to. Like yeah. the state of Virginia. Yeah. The didn't state want of them Virginia, to. Yeah. Uh, it, it's wild. Bad, bad luck, Virginia. Bad luck. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then to just bring it down a notch again. Um, also, 67 is a great year for births. We've got, for, for music births, oh, okay. we've got Faith Hill, <laughs> Keith Urban, <Okay. laughs> Vanilla Ice, who the world would not be the same without him. And the lesser known and lesser impactful Kurt Cobain. Oh I yeah, mean, yeah, just like Kurt, just you know, just Kurt. just Kurt. Yeah, who? Just lesser. Who, imagine if, yeah. <laughs> okay, wait. Imagine if Kurt Cobain was the same I, age as Faith Hill. <laughs> well, he he would be now. I know. Imagine like what's he done for the last thirty years? Like imagine if he like to to be to be clear, that's sarcasm. Kurt Cobain did a lot more for music, I think, than I think it's pretty. Clear. Than, I, think, I think most people would agree that that Kurt Cobain, we, we all we all miss him. But hold I do on, wonder, like, I, what he'd be doing. I, yeah, go ahead, Jesse. I, I, why are we here? Yeah. <laughs> okay, wait. Um, so tie, tying this back to a man for all seasons. <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> we well, we took we took a nice leisurely stroll through the garden. It's it's the middle of summer. Yeah. Okay, I was just like, I was going through this stuff. I was looking it up on the internet. Like, what actually, like, what was my grandfather, like, going through when he saw this for the first time? Okay. And I was, it just blew my mind, the amount of things that occurred during, like, these three years surrounding when this movie comes out that are just, like, like kind of seminal. You know, even including Faith Hill's birth. I mean, I was she's, just, just going to say, I, I imagine him, he's a lawyer in San Francisco, walking yeah. out and being like, ah, oh, what a fine day. Beautiful baby named Faith Hill was born today. Yeah. <laughs> Joyous time to be alive. Or, yeah. Or maybe yeah. he was just like, that's Faith Hill. That's Kurt Cobain. I'm going to tell yeah. my grandkids about this. Yeah. <laughs> no, but, but, but to, to get back to, to, to seriousness for a minute, I mean, it's, it's true. It's true civil unrest. It's a, it's a crazy time in the world. There's race riots going on. It's, it's dangerous. It's a dangerous time. People are going to Vietnam and getting killed in brutal ways. Yeah, um, and dying on American soil. They're on American soil and dying in brutal ways. It, it's it's just, it's kind of unbelievable. And this movie comes out in the middle of all of that. It, it, if you uh, want to understand the movie, I, I think these old movies, it's it's important to contextualize it, For sure. I guess. And I think the yeah. one thing that it points to immediately, and also because it points to that, it connects to all these other things that, that were connected in these movements, is, is the conscientious objector. <clears throat> Thomas More is the conscientious objector of his time, right? I mean, yes. he's basically saying, like, I cannot, I cannot sign this because it goes against my conscience. And and there's that great line that he has with Norfolk, mm-hmm. his his best friend. Like, it's a cool relationship that they have because Norfolk is not an an intellect. He's a little bit of a dummy. Yeah, but he's got like a heart of gold. He's he's loyal as anything. He's loyal to More throughout all of this, and he's like he's putting his own head on on the on the chopping block for yeah. a long time. And then he, more... he's, he's the only one that actually helps him yeah. in the trial. Yeah. You got your life in your own hands, Thomas. Yeah. Like it always has been. It always <laughs> has been. He's like angry at Thomas for making him do this. Yeah. And he says, why won't you yeah. sign Thomas? Why won't you sign? You for might not fellowship. agree with it, but for fellowship, sign it. And Thomas Norris says, and when you sign for fellowship and you're okay with your conscience, you go to heaven and I sign against my conscience and I go to hell. Will you come with me for fellowship? For fellowship, and it's like, oh man, boom! Like like punching the guys. (laughs) No, I show you the times. It's so good. 
so yeah, I guess I guess all of that fun stroll through the summer garden sure. is to <laughs> help us like understand where this is coming from, where the people who who showed this movie to us were coming from when they saw it, the the world that they sort of lived through. Yes. And found like this sort of flotsam to cling to and help us to understand the movie more as well. Yeah, I think. I, I agree. I, I think that that's yeah, okay. a, a, a movie about a man with principles who stands yeah. by his principles and will die for them and will die for his conscience, will die for his morality, die for his ethics, die for his God is a pretty powerful sort of movie in any time. Yeah. Hence the title. But also yeah. the, the point that you're making, I, I see the context there. I see how this could really slot in very neatly into that sort of tumultuous history. What, what do you think, Jesse? Are you happy with our long yeah. stroll and we're back? <laughs> I, mean, yeah, we're <laughs> I did enjoy the stroll, but I'm happy to be back. I'm happy to be back <laughs> in all the seasons. Thank, um, thanks for coming with me, guys. I appreciate it. Of course, any day. <laughs> it, was a, it, was a, it was a lovely stroll. I giggled. Um, <laughs> I, I laughed, I cried, it moved me, Bob. Well, I, I think talking about the 60s kind of also brings out, like, maybe an attitude towards government, because, like, especially with Vietnam and stuff like that. And it's if you're having protests and riots and and everything that's going on, then that seems to say everybody hates government. But here's an objector who's actually a part of it, who's actually giving a guide. This is how you can still be in it but not participate in, in the parts that you're objecting to. And I think that's, yeah. And actually I find I'm finding this movie really prevalent now because I, I think a lot of people still really struggle with that. And this is kind of a good, it's a good thing to watch. It's a good thing. It helps refresh you a little bit. It starts oh, yeah. pointing you on the way to say like, this is the way that I think as a man, here's how you should be. And this is why, and maybe I wanted to launch into a question kind of concerning this, but we keep on talking about Thomas Moore as if, as if he's doing the right thing. But I think it's also worth considering, like, just as a thought experiment, what if he's wrong? Or put more as a question, do we as dads think that he's making the right decision as a dad to put himself through this? Because as Norfolk says, he's definitely the one, he's the one who has life in his hands, and he's the one doing this. So what do you guys think as a dad? Um, Is this the right so decision? Short, well, short answer... Short answer, this is the right decision if you're him. Um, I know it sounds like a, like a cheat, but there's nothing else that this character could do if he's standing strong to himself. As as for myself, I would have a really hard time answering that question. I, I find it almost unimaginable. So I, I am going to have to, I'm going to have to pass because kind of like in the movie, he says his daughter Meg has this argument, you know, for him not mm-hmm. staying in the tower to come out because it she is, says, it's you a, know, if, it's a good argument. It, and yeah. and he says that's very neat. And he <laughs> says, you know, maybe maybe we need to risk valorizing ourselves if that means that we're taking a stand against something that we think is wrong. And I think that's very true. I think none of us here could reasonably say that it would be the right decision and we would make it because it's a lot different than say I would take a bullet for my family. It's it's not that same question. Yeah, um, it's, it's not. He, yeah. could, he could get out of this. He could convince himself in some way of this or that. And maybe he could live with the guilt or maybe the guilt will go away. And maybe he could say he was sorry later to the God that he's worried about offending. Um, maybe he could square it with his conscience. There's a lot of maybes that could happen, but he puts it all on the line because him, himself is in his hands and he will not let himself go because that is the most important part is his soul. 
And he refuses to bow to anyone that wants to tell him to compromise that. This primacy of the conscience is a really huge thing in this movie, uh, the primacy of the private, yeah, well-formed yeah. conscience. Yeah. You, you must, and he says, you know, you must do as your, as your conscience bids you. And I think that there's a scene in there, we, we talked about it a little bit before we came on the air. Uh, you meant, you brought it up, Jesse, but the scene, uh, again, with, with Meg trying to convince him, the way that scene plays out is she gives him several arguments using logic. And then when he refutes them pretty ably, pretty nimbly, he doesn't quite, mm-hmm. they're not convincing answers. They're just very good answers from him. Yeah. They don't change how but she that's... thinks. She falls apart. She turns away from him, looks at the wall and says, but within reason, isn't this all that God could reasonably want? And then he comes through and he says, ah, finally, it is no longer a question of logic. It's a question of love. And it's that line. And she, she leaves sort of in tears. She goes and stands with her new, with her new husband and he goes and sits down at the little prison table <clears throat> and he takes out the little package that they brought him, some custard, right? And Alice, his wife is standing in the corner and she has her, her back to him. And the whole movie is, is kind of set up Alice as, you know, she, she tells her thoughts <clears throat> to, to anyone who'll hear them, but her husband is very nice about sort of letting her know when maybe that's not needed right now, or maybe she's out of her depth, like when she's talking to the king and he sort of sets a little like trap for her and she doesn't know what to do because they're yeah. not supposed to expect the king, but they're supposed to expect the king. Yeah. And he's playing on that and she doesn't know what to do. And he breaks in very gently and like sort of allows her to be like, you know, it's okay. You don't have to know how to play these games. Yeah. <laughs> she always is, loves keeping this beautiful house, loves having these this the, the appearance of wealth loves making this great place for everyone to live. And he eats the custard and tells her, this is a great custard, Alice. And he says, that's a great dress you have on. Great color, at least. And she's so insulted by that. My God, how little <laughs> you think of me. Yeah. yeah. And it's this beautiful, though, this, this conversation where he's, he's slowly trying to break down and tell her that he's very scared and he needs her love and support. She refuses, refuses, refuses. He's entreating her in different ways, different tactics, just like with Meg did with him earlier. And finally, the only way that she breaks down her walls is that he brings down his completely. And he also starts to break down. Mm-hmm. And that's when she rushes to him. That's when the question of logic turns into the question of love. That's when the whole family is united together in that love. There's so many reasoned arguments, so much logic. And we're still going to hear some more in the courtroom. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah. here, for the heart of the family, there's there's no answer here. The answer is simply in love. And all this is being done for love and through love. And so, yeah, I, I think it, it seems inevitable. Just like great drama, it, it's inevitable. It's faded. It must happen. And he's brought to that pass, even though all along the way, he doesn't think it's going to happen. Eventually it happens. So in terms of, is it the right decision? It's it's the only one. It's the only decision. That's my answer. Okay. I'd, I'd say, um, I, I'd go whole hog, yes. He's making the right decision as the father of his family. Uh, or the, the the head of his family, the father of his children, and uh, the husband of his wife. I think, I mean, partially, you know, I, th- I think partially because of what Vito said, like, it's the only decision that he can make based on who he is as yeah. a person. Um, he's mm-hmm. he's this guy who finally, like, as as a human being, his essential aspect is that he believes in the primacy of the Pope and in that what Henry's doing is wrong and that he can't agree to this. He can't he can't make this oath uh, that he doesn't agree mm-hmm. with. Sure. But I mean, like to, to just hinge, you know, whether or not he's a good man on his, on his death. I think that that, I think you got to look at 
the fact that the, the whole hour and 45 minute film, you got to look at the whole thing. I mean, he is trying with all of his might and mean not to come to this moment. And he probably will, but he, I think that there, you're supposed to get a sense that he's getting a lot older as this goes on. A lot of time is passing um, as we watch this movie. Yeah. I, I don't know. One, one, my fa- I think my favorite line is really what kind of embodies what I think he's doing and, and what we sort of, I don't know, something that I've kind of tried to build my life as, as, a, as a man off of is when he talks about God made the angels to show him his splendor, made the animals for innocence and plans for their simplicity. But man, he made to serve him wittily in the tangle of his mind. If he suffers us to come to such a case that there is no escaping, then we may stand to our tackle as best we can. And yes, Meg, then we can clamor like champions if we have the spittle for it. But it's God's part, not our own, to bring ourselves to such a pass. Our natural business lies in escaping. And he just delivers it so well. Like Paul Schofield is just the man. If um, I can take if, the oath, yeah, I will. If I can take the <laughs> oath, I will. He tries so hard to not get to this moment. He wants to stay alive. He wants to support his family. He takes the chancellorship and he like he continues doing it. But again, I mean, I kind of feel like 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 this question is asking like, would he have been a better man if he had taken bribes? No, obviously, like absolutely <laughs> yeah. not. Like, okay. like Cromwell says, you know, he's the only judge since uh, since Cato, damn it, Cato, who, damn it, who ever didn't like came out of it with like a hundred pounds and a gold chain. Like yeah. he's he's too good of a person. So yeah, I think it's absolutely right. I think I, I I've tried to live my life this way. I I don't think I've got that many principles that would lead to my death, and I don't think they're gonna get. No, no, I'm I not Chancellor of England. So I don't think great. anyone's gonna kill you for your principles. I, I hope not. <laughs> but Jesse, Jesse, yeah, what, I, what do you I think? think? I think yes. I think yes because to me, a, a lot of the crux of the movie it, it is about conscience. But conscience in this movie seems to be that thing that you. Think, and that has to be represented through your words, right? Um, those inner thoughts, those inner those inner principles that you have, if they are not expressed and you express something else, then you will end up losing yourself. You will be Richard Rich, the guy who has no personality. And so we as, as fathers, like one of the things that I constantly think about is like, <laughs> you know, it's annoying. Like everybody says, like, especially since I'm with my kids all the time, like, Basically, everybody thinks that you're a good father if you're just there, right? And right. there is yeah. some truth to that, right? But it's it's more than that. To be a good father, it's you you have to have this certain steadfastness, especially in your words, as this movie is pointing out, because you you can't just flip on a dime and become another person. Yeah, so man. That, and this sort of representation of fatherhood is something. <clears throat> The steadfastness to words is something so rarely seen, especially when there's tangle of words. Really, the tangle yeah. of mind exists not just in the mind. It exists in this entire complicated government that he is trying to navigate through. And through it all, he is steadfast. And that is what I want to be as a father. So I will say, yes, this is what awesome. a father should do in this scenario. Even though I think any father would say, this is really hard and maybe maybe too hard for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. I I even think Thomas More would say that because he basically did earlier in the movie when yeah. he says, "Don't worry, this is not the stuff martyrs are made of." <laughs> <Yeah>. Wink wink <laughs> audience. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah, I, I think, you know, he was really setting himself up. So uh, it, it also is, it was judge sort of coming off this question is that he, he knew that he was in danger um, enough to tell his family that they needed to get out, leave the country, as he said, same day, different boats. But he also knew that they didn't have a case. Like he was, all, he said all the way up until he walked into the courtroom, there will be no trial because they have no case. And he thought he was going to be fine. And it was only until he walks in and then he sees Richard Rich standing yeah. with a new chain of office. And, and he says, he says, and what did the prisoner say when he wouldn't take the oath? He goes, Parliament had not the power. And the whole courtroom's like, oh. And then they go, repeat the prisoner's words. And he goes, Parliament had not the, the courage for it. Or words competence. to that effect. The competence. Competence. Yes. competence. Or words to that effect. Or words to that effect. <laughs> yes. You know what I've been wondering? I, I, I can never remember the exact exchange, but Richard, he talks about like going in mm-hmm. and they have like this exchange where they give each other like these three different like situations, like like possible situations. And do you remember that? I, I don't know. Maybe I'm I'm just uh, what like do you Richard. Mean? I can't remember exactly what it is. Uh, Richard says, um, gives him a case. Like say, like this thing happens, and Thomas says something, and he says, "But I'll give you a higher case." Oh, let me put to you a higher case. Yes, and I then do Thomas the says, "Yes," and you said, and then they cut it off. Like they didn't know. I've always wondered, like what what did Richard say to that? It's something about God and man, and, and I'm all not this sure. Stuff. I, I yeah, yeah, I I remember yeah. that scene very yeah. vaguely. But what was yeah. the point? Yeah, I'm, I'm just curious. I'm just curious. I don't know. This movie, like, I'm. I have so many like thoughts and curiosities around it. Yeah. Well, like, I don't think Richard Rich ever answers that. In fact, I yeah, think he yeah. just moves on to their next topic, which is the topic about Parliament and the King. All right. Crazy fun fact about that case, though. So yeah, Richard Rich really did say all that, or at least something akin to that. He he really did come and perjure himself in trial, and then there were two witnesses that were brought to the stand who were there in the room. Yeah, <laughs> and they both said, and they both said, um, I didn't that hear didn't anything happen. like that. I, 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 I wish <laughs> that the movie, I wish that the movie crazy. had like had like zoomed out, and you see like a guy in the corner like sweeping, going like, "Whoa, what is this?" Yeah, like, like no. they they both said something equivalent to like, "Oh, I was there to move his books. I wasn't there to listen to their conversation." They both totally chickened out. Don't end up lying to the judges, and then just walk away. Yeah. Wow. Well, that's Cromwell there. That's Cromwell's work being done, man. Paying them off. Yeah. Uh, that's crazy. All right. Well, do you, did you do you have another question, Jesse? Yeah. Well, what do you think about? I, I think at the beginning of the podcast, I, or somewhere in there, I was talking about Cromwell and how I kind of agree with his arguments. Um, yeah. I, specifically with the silence thing. I have. I, I have I wanna, that whole exchange like, up right here. Oh, that's a okay. long one. <clears throat> I do. Uh, um, but. Ask your question and maybe we can find it in this exchange. Yeah. Okay. So from my memory, his argument about the silence is to say that like, if he were to kill more and the judges didn't say anything, then they are in fact saying that they agree with it. So isn't he saying, so no, 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 no. Here, here it is. Silence? Here, here it is. Oh, it, please. Okay. Do. So here, but let let us take another case. Suppose I were to take a dagger from my sleeve and make to kill the prisoner with it, and my lordships here, instead of crying out for me to stop, maintained their silence. That would be token. It would be token of willingness that I should do it, and under the law, they will be guilty with me. So silence can, according to the circumstances, speak. Let us consider now the circumstances of the prisoner's silence. The oath was put to loyal subjects up and down the country, and they all declared his grace's title to be just and good. But when it came to the prisoner, he refused. He calls this silence. 
Yet, is there a man in this court, is there a man in this country, who does not know Sir Thomas More's opinion of this title? How can this be? Because this silence betokened, nay, this silence was not silence at all, but most eloquent denial. Sorry, I had to bang the, I had to bang the, yeah, I that was the table. So Thomas More's response to it is to say well, that the maxim. Isn't he, isn't he basically right? Doesn't everybody in England know that he is against a marriage and against Henry, like starting not his church so. based on the silence? Not so. Not so. Not so. Wait, the maxim wait. is qui tacit consentiri. The maxim of the law is silence gives consent. If therefore you wish to construe what my silence betokened, you must construe that I consented, not that I denied. And then Cromwell says, is that in fact what the world construes from it? Do you pretend that is what you wish the world to construe from it? And Thomas More says, the world must construe according to its wits. The court must construe according to the law. And everyone laughs, but it's like there's a lag. Yes. It's it's funny. There's like a lag. Um <laughs> So uh, it, it really just sounds like <laughs> it really just sounds like is Thomas is saying, yeah, but legally you can't do anything to me. Yeah. Yeah, basically. For sure. But he, he says multiple times when people say uh, like like Matthew says, you know, I just want you to all know that we're on your side. And he says, what side is that? He goes, oh, you know, the, the good one. And he goes, no servant of mine does me any good service by babbling this about. You know nothing. I have said nothing. You know, it's it's, yeah. it's very clear. You can think what you want to think, and you might be right, but you can't prove it. And it comes out he hasn't even he hasn't told his daughter. He hasn't told his wife. Uh, he hasn't told his wife. Like not even in, in this like awesome scene where he says, "You know, I am the Lord High Judge on the Bible." Has your husband ever? He's like, "That's why I can't tell you." Yeah, because yeah. you don't need to have that on you. He makes it. He makes it so clear. He has literally never said yeah. what he thinks to anyone at all. Wait, so Jesse, so Jesse, Jesse, you have Jesse's a question. Trying to break I, in, yeah. I've I mean, got another I mean, question. Okay. I'll, you ask your question first. Maybe just to close out this topic. Yeah, yeah. I think I agree with all that. Obviously, I I think Thomas is in the right, even in terms of like legally, but it's just, it's just striking to me that Cromwell, and I guess this is how, like, if you're kind of corrupt, this is how you operate. You're using something that's true, and I think he's saying true things, right? He's saying some true things about silence and the way it works, but he just is kind of, dumb in that he didn't seem to find any legal precedence for it. I, I, um, I think he was very well aware that it had no standing, but he just was trying to throw it out and see what sticks. Yeah. You know? He's trying to I convince guess, a jury of the people that he paid off. Yeah, I guess I forgot about to come the jury to the conclusion. part. Like, there is a whole jury to go and convince. I guess if that gave me second thoughts, that definitely would have given any other guy sort of second thoughts and they heard it too. So I guess that's a good practice. Uh, sorry, what was your question, Mike? So I actually kind of, I don't know. I wonder, it makes me feel a little worse about Thomas More. It makes me kind of wonder, like, I don't know, is he just kind of a playing around with words with all of this when, when this comes out? Because what he says now is that according to the law, silence means consent. And it almost seems like to be consistent with his own sorts of principles. I don't know. He this is, this is nitpicky. Something. This is nitpicky. But he's a nitpicky dude, as am I. Well, you, but you, like, you, so, like, so him not saying something is him <laughs> saying something. He's saying that he agrees with it. So the only way he could say he doesn't agree with it is by saying something. He, he's very careful, though. He's, it, very, it's just he's like, very, very careful with, yeah. what, with what he allows to happen. Yeah. And, and the way that his morals sort of jive with the law. Yeah. So he's saying, if you must construe anything, yeah. you must construe this. Yeah. He's yeah. Not like, even in the language that he gives, 
he literally just says, if therefore you wish to construe what my silence be that's token, true. then you must construe that it's an if then statement. Yeah. It's not, that's what's happening. He's just saying, I, I'm going to take, take you to school for a second, Cromwell. That's not how logic or law works here. Yeah. He's not even saying you're wrong about me or you're right about me. It's like, you don't it's, get the law. Yeah. It's like he, I am the law. He owns the playground and everyone here is wearing blindfolds and yeah. running around. And he's like, no, you, the slides over there, yeah. you're trying to go yeah. down the monkey bars like a slide. And it's very clear. It's not working. Yeah. <laughs> you threaten like a dockside bully. bully. How should I threaten? Yeah. Like a statesman with justice. justice. <laughs> oh, that Boom. is what you are threatened with. <laughs> okay. But also like, do you think that you would like Sir Thomas more? Like if you knew him, do you think that you'd be like, oh, this is a cool dude. Ooh. I feel like I would just. If I was living at this time and I was one of the people in this play, I would probably be Norfolk. Like, honestly, I think that's most of us. Yeah. I definitely think it's Beto. Yeah, no, um, for sure. I, I take that. Look, you want to call me tall and handsome with some awesome sideburns? Dude, those sideburns are baller, man. Yeah. Like, they're cut up. Like, yeah. No, but like, wouldn't you just be like him? You're like, I really appreciate this guy. You'd be like everyone there who's like, this guy is the paragon of virtue. And he's also really annoying. Like, you know, can't I, he just like get I, over this stupid at, thing? At every dinner party, he would just be just relentlessly dunking on anyone that said something stupid. Yeah. And that would be it would get old, but I would just try not to say a lot of stuff. Yeah. You know? He's like, yeah, we're friends. <laughs> I laugh at what he says. <laughs> what do you think, yeah, Jesse? It, would, uh, friends, yeah. In a lot of ways, dude, in a lot of ways, this is like just the ultimate dad. Um, <laughs> like Yeah. Honestly, the way Paul Schofield portrays him is like the wittiest dude ever. And then when I, again, when I was looking him up, apparently he really was this witty and always saying like some sort of kind of witty comeback for everything. Like, remember the cup thing that happens in this movie? So yeah. in real life, oh, yeah. he really does get a cup from somebody. Oh, really? And it's super nice, super it was nice a litigant, engraved and all Avril that. Avril Machen, she has a case in the court of requests. There we go. Sorry. It, wait, well, wait, wait, yeah, someone, so, yeah. So it's someone different in, in real life. I think it's another nobleman, but okay. I could be wrong about that. So he, in return, he takes it and he keeps it. But instead, he sends back a cup that is more expensive, but far <laughs> less good looking. <laughs> Did he actually give a, a, a negative, like in the in the play, like she doesn't get rotten, unfair one. Yeah, I got an unfair one. And Cromwell's like, no, I'm sure it was fair. Like, this guy was fair. <laughs> like, you gave him a bribe and he gave you the wrong response. Like, it's, it was fair. It's, it's, what, what does he always say, though? He's like, uh, I, I, I trust you'll handle it fairly. He goes, I'll, I'll treat it as if it were my own daughter. Fairly. Speedily. Yeah. Yeah. Which is like, yeah. that's such a kindness. Yeah. He's such an equin, yeah. equinaminous. I always screw up that word. Equanimous? He, he's, <laughs> equanimous. He, he yeah. has... The virtue of equanimity. Ah! There we go. Yeah, I got there. Got there. Yeah. Ooh, short yeah. stroll. Yeah, Mike's uh, Mike's short, yeah. short stroll through language. Man, we're gonna yeah. keep going somewhere else. But but now being a dad, now I know what that phrase. I'm gonna treat this like my daughter. Like means it means sometimes you're a little harsh with your daughter because your daughter's being a brat. Yes, yeah. right. <laughs> that is yeah. true. And when you're harsh with her, you say like, "Go to your room" or something like that. Like. If he if he's saying she's gonna treat this like your daughter, which means like if you done something bad, he's gonna call you out on it. Yeah, and 
In the future, when someone tells me that, I'm going to say, actually, could you just treat me like a complete stranger? You have an evidence story, so that would be nice. <laughs> no, don't treat me like your child. Please. Yeah, treat, treat me like the cop treated me when he pulled me over and I rolled down the window and I was sweaty and really dirty. And he was like, have a good day, sir. <laughs> you had a day. Oh, boy. Um, so yeah. I, I think if we would like to, to shift over, I think we've talked a lot about the movie. Do we have any other sort of scenes that we want to mention, other sections we, we didn't think we covered? You know, the only thing I want to mention is um, his relationship with Matthew. Matthew, the the butler. Uh, the steward. The steward, yeah. I, I That's just such an interesting relationship to me. And it's really cool. Like, that's the first, like, he is the one who introduces us to Sir Thomas More. He he's, looks, actually, he's actually the common man in the, in the oh, play. Oh, really? Yeah, he's okay. the narrator, kind of. Oh, okay. I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah. But I mean, like, he's, Thomas knows that he is accepting uh, payment from Cromwell to spy on him. He's kind of, he's kind of a little snitch. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we, we get introduced to Thomas through, through him, like, looking at the... Breaking at, the seal breaking accidentally the seal a little accident. bit. He's like, oh, no. <laughs> like, at the, on, the, on the message that gets sent to him from Woolsey, Thomas Moore just says, like, oh, is anything interesting, Matthew? But then, but then there's the scene uh, when he dismisses his... All the servants, all yeah. the staff, and and he's and he says, Matthew, hey Matthew, you know, like if you want to, you can stay. And he says, Well, I'll, it'll be a lot more work. Are you going to give me more money? And Moore's like, No, I'm going to pay you less, <laughs> but you can stay if you want. Like I, I love you. Like yeah. you're a great guy. And I'll, he, he and says, I'll like, you, Sorry, I, I'll, I'll yeah. miss and, you, Matthew. Yeah, and he says, I will miss you. And he I, says, Oh, yeah. you won't miss me. You see right through me, sir. Yeah. And Moore says, I will miss you. Yeah. Like don't don't tell me what I what I think and what I don't and what I feel like, Ooh, I know who you are as a person. Yeah. I know who yeah, and everybody also- is as a person. And I, I still love them, which is really like, it's, I, I feel like in this movie, we, we often look at more as, you know, he's the logic, the logic logician. He's like very much a lawyer and all this, but he's also this very loving individual. Yeah. He, he recognizes everybody. And I think a part of why he's able to, uh, well, he has the relationship he has with with Norfolk and and he's able to to be such a, a friend to people and why he's able to be so witty is because he loves them all so much, despite seeing all of their flaws. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I just wanted and to mention that, that. I thought that was really cool. Yeah. And I think it really bears out in that scene, especially when he says, like, and you see right through me. And then what happens is Thomas Moore descends down the steps, looks him straight in the eye as if to say, like, I'm seeing all of you right now and I am going to miss this. I'm going to miss you. Yeah. And there's, yeah. And then he has like a whole like little monologue that happens afterwards where he's like, miss me. What does he mean? He's going to miss me. And he's like, <laughs> yeah, I know. It's so great. Um, he, like throws and, it on the floor. He's like yelling at his wife. He says, he says here, um, what's in me for him to miss? Matthew, will you kindly take a cut in your wages? No, sir Thomas, I will not. That's it. That's all of it. All right, so he's down on his luck. I'm sorry. I don't mind saying that. I'm sorry. Bad luck. If I had any good luck to spare, he would have some. I wish we could all have good luck all the time. I wish we had wings. I wish rainwater was beer. But it isn't. <laughs> I like that a lot. Yeah. I, I also like that nobody else really gets this monologue like he does because he's a side character that gets like some lines or a monologue, but they're there are at least like two others that are have like a similar sort of scene. And one is the jailer who like yeah. has to up to the family out. And it's like, oh, yeah. I'm sorry, Thomas. I'm just doing my job. I'm a right? plain, simple um, man. I don't want no trouble. Yeah. I don't want no trouble. Yeah. 
I that was like a good like mirror. That that was a, like a mirror to Thomas, wasn't it? Like Thomas, he kind of has said that before. Like I'm just a simple guy. Like I don't, I don't want to be getting into trouble. I'm not saying anything because I don't want to get into trouble. And then there's also the executioner at the end. He has no lines. Instead, he just like kneels before Thomas and he just says, "What, what does Saint Thomas say?" You send me to God. You're, you're sure of that, Sir Thomas, Cranmer says. Yeah. And Thomas, he takes off his hat and he says, he will not refuse one who is so blithe to go to him. Yeah. Pretty, pretty great last lines. Well, and yeah. his, his last like official words are what? I die our king's good servant, but God's first. Yes. Man, love, love to have some last words like that. Yeah, mine will probably be something stupid, like I have to pee. Mine will be like, ah! <laughs> <laughs> existential screaming <laughs> shouldn't have run that yeah. red light <laughs> yeah sometimes I, I think about like the slew of words that I'll be saying because like I might die in a car accident or something and it's going to be like well I should probably work on my language <laughs> <laughs> yeah what, what, what's, what's that guy who was it His, whose final words I mean this is a little bit of a tangent and if no one can remember it but whose final words was it that said moose Indian do you guys remember that <laughs> Oh, Are you thinking of the guy who said wait. Rosebud? No, <laughs> no. I, I think it was. I think it was like Thoreau or somebody. <laughs> moose Indian. Yeah, but it was like Moose. Period. Indian. Period. Yep. Those are yeah. Thoreau's last words. It's, yes. Thoreau. Yeah. yeah. That that's that's the sort of last line that you don't want. <laughs> um, random disconnected synapses firing and your mouth moving without you really meaning to. Wow. It yeah. could have been meaningful. Who knows? Uh, yeah. Well, we'll, get, we'll give Thoreau. It could have meant something to Thoreau. <laughs> Well, if uh, if that's all that we got, I'd like to move on and just talk a, yeah. a little bit about the 39th Academy Awards uh, yeah, yeah. for the best year in film, 1966. So, uh, Man for All Seasons wins. Fred Zinnemann wins for director. It's Paul a crazy Schofield year, right? wins for actor. And then it wins for best uh, adapted screenplay. At that time, it was called best screenplay based, based on material from another medium. Um, and, uh, and costume. Costume, right? And I think it did win for costuming. I'm just I'm scrolling down. Oh, it also wins for mm-hmm. wow, cinematography. Back when cinematography was split between black and white and color. Yeah. What do you think of that? And it also wins for best costume design between black and white and color. And then uh oh, really? Who's Afraid of Virginia Wolf is the one that won for black and white for both cinematography and costume design. Uh, that's that's really what it was fighting against that year. It, it got it nominated for I was reading it was like thirteen or fourteen. No. How many Academy Awards? It, I think it was nominated for 13 Academy Awards. Uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf was nominated for 13. And yeah. Man for All Seasons was nominated for like 9 or 10. Yeah, it, it's some, it's somewhere it, up there. It beat it yeah, by it, a good bit. Which is, not which that is much, weird. Actually. Which is weird it didn't sweep. And actually, there's a little bit of trivia on here that I did find at IMDb. I'm not sure how true it is. But Paul Schofield was so convinced that uh, Richard Burton was going to win the best actor that he did not actually go to the Academy oh, really? Awards that year. And so when he won... They had to ship his award to him, and it broke. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah. Um, so it wins, but uh, it's stacked up against for Best Picture. Uh, Alfie, The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming, The Sand Pebbles, and Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. And honestly, looking at those, The Sand Pebbles is pretty good. That's the Steve McQueen movie. But I think really, I don't know, between this and Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, they're both based on on plays. They're both beautifully written. One is just the definition of a stone cold bummer, and then the other one is a man for all seasons. <laughs> I wonder. I wonder what like the greater context of the world at the time had to do with had to do with a man for all seasons winning. 
you know? Yeah, I, I would like to know maybe who was in the voting body who made up everything. Best director, it's, okay, we have Blow Up, A Man and a Woman. Oh, The Professionals. And uh, again, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Actress, Vanessa Redgrave is actually nominated because she was in another movie that year, which is funny. But here we have Elizabeth Taylor, who ends up winning Anouk Ami for A Man and a Woman, Ida Kaminsky for The Shop on Main Street, Lynn Redgrave for Georgie Girl, and then Vanessa Redgrave for Morgan. Are they sisters? I'd assume they're sisters. They might be. I'm not sure. Uh, and then Any let's see. to Eddie Redmayne? No. I don't know. It's no. Red. They're very, very different. Although one's a actually, one's a main. Actually kind of a funny connection to an earlier episode that we did. Uh, Vanessa Redgrave's daughter is Jolie Richardson. Oh, wow. Yes. Really? Yeah. Yeah, huh. from uh, 101 Dalmatians fame. Yeah. So that's kind of cool. 101 Dalmatians fame. Fame. Yeah, it's it's a little <laughs> sad when you say it like that. <laughs> uh, but this is this is a pretty interesting year. And it's it's actually it's funny looking back on especially ones that were 70 years removed from. Yeah. How few movies continued. And it's it's even weird to know, say like, that a man for all these... seasons continued because yeah. it kind of hasn't. I feel like this is not really a part of the cultural consciousness almost at all. Right. Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't go around talking to people about it. I, d- I don't think I've ever heard someone independently mention a man for all seasons unless I brought it up. Like, yeah. I, I think I, I have been the only person in this Venn diagram of many people's lives. who's <laughs> like, I love this movie. <laughs> yeah. I've, I've never started a conversation with that. What, what do you yeah, think? I, Desi? Mean, do you- I mean, I, I haven't really talked about this movie in a really long time. So yeah, I, I would say it's kind of not, but then again, to be fair, like most movies made 60 or even like 40 plus years ago really aren't talked about too much except like Psycho. I, I don't I don't think that's correct. I I think actually that more so now um, movies from the, the 70s and the, the 80s have more attention than maybe they've ever really had. I mean, especially for 80s nostalgia that's coming through, like so much of what we're seeing on Netflix. I mean, stranger things exists yeah. only because of eighties nostalgia. Yeah, that's true. Um, but that, the seventies, eighties nostalgia is, is like 30, 30 plus 40. years ago. Right. I'm talking, I'm saying yeah. 50 years. This is almost a step to a step to generian. man. I'm having fun with words today. <laughs> <laughs> so like, Wait, no, one 19- thing you didn't mention, what, 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 um, Robert you- Shaw, this is Robert Shaw's solitary, solitary Academy award nomination. That is true. Which is that kind is of true. crazy. I mean, for a guy, like, he's been, he was in a million things. He's um, <clears throat> in a ton of things. That's most notably Jaws. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, and honestly, just just for that, just for that, he's in it for literally, like, ten yeah. minutes. Yeah. And I have that line. He says, I have no queen. Catherine's not my wife. No priest can make her so. Yeah. They that say she is my wife are not only liars, but traitors. Yes, traitors that I will not brook now. Treachery. Tre-. Like, he just goes crazy. Yeah. He goes insane for, like, for yeah. just... A few sentences. I've yeah, never seen. But he like yells from loudly. like normal, like a normal human yes. being to just being nuts. Yes. I love how like they cut to inside the house and everyone's like hearing this going yeah. down. Like all the courtiers and like, oh, yeah, he's gonna die. Like yeah. Maury's gonna <laughs> die. And he's um, gonna take that ceremonial knife yeah. out and it's gonna run him right yeah. on through. I think he could have won for uh for just uh, your taste in music is excellent. It exactly coincides, coincides with, with my, my own. own. That's how I've chosen to live my life. So, so this movie, I've based my life on it in many ways, mostly that line. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, to your point, Jesse, yeah, I guess I, things, things that do go on are forgotten more, but I think that especially with the advent of and, and the sort of mainstreaming of color, I think that now 
there's going to be a, a longer field that we look back to. I think black and white is really sort of the the drawbridge for modern interest. I think pre-color, people are not going to be as interested in looking back on now. But I mean, Hitchcock is still incredibly respected and it's still studied. I don't know about that. I think people still are like more given to watch black and white old movies than color old movies. I mean, like there's, there's a huge, I think there's a huge, I don't know. I feel like I know a huge base of people who are like really into old Hollywood films from the forties and the thirties, but there's not really people who are like, Oh, the sixties was a great time for movies or the seventies. I mean, you're looking at one of them. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I'm looking at, yeah. Not that but I, if we're thinking about like what is in the mainstream consciousness, it's almost never going to be. I, I feel like we go through like selective decades, like a few years yeah, ago with eighties. Now it's really the nineties. Everybody's like all going crazy for pretty soon. It'll be the two thousands. And then like maybe when the sixties come up again and then we get into like sixties movies and this will come up. Otherwise I, I feel like we kind of shun everything from like the past that's not the past 10 years and not like this one decade that we happen to be fixated on in general. Like it just tends to lead the consciousness until somebody brings it up. I mean, that's just my thoughts. I, I, I would like, I'd like to hear if other people want to weigh in on this. Cause it's, I think yeah. we could devote an entire I, podcast to discussing you know about the cycle of generations I, and art. Yeah. Yeah. If, if that's a really whoever cool listens question. to this could like comment on our website and right. let us know what they think. I would love to hear some opinions about this. Yeah, I, I just don't think this is really in the mainstream consciousness. I don't either. I, and I, honestly, I, I'm going to make a prediction too. I don't think it will be. I think that most people now will look at Thomas More, Saint or Sir, however you want to address mm-hmm. him. They're, they're both his titles. I think that in, in today's especially extremely pragmatic kind of capitalist sentiment, I think people will think he's really stupid. I think but man, that, I, I it's, think, it's such I, a breath of fresh air though. But like, I, think that, I, I think that looking at it, you know, as as Cardinal Wolsey said, you know, you're a constant regret to me, Thomas. If you could just see facts flat on without that horrible moral squint, yeah. So you know good. that that line is really kind of he, he's the kind of the ultimate like relativist. Yeah, you know, he's like you got to do whatever you got to do to make the things happen that you want to happen. And even though he ends up like a very sad, broken man, shunned by the person that he tried to please the most, I, I don't think that lesson is going to carry through. I think this is very much a movie that will always have its devoted followers but I don't think this will ever come back into the real conversation of movies. I think it's, it's not a, it's not too hard to get into. I just think that the mindset of having these principles willing to live and die for these principles specifically, I I don't think that that's going to appeal to a lot of people now. I wonder. Yeah. I mean, I, I really hope it does like sincerity. I like the scene where I, I like, I wrote down like, this is such a breath of fresh air because I don't know. I watch mostly cynical movies these days, but when he, when he's giving up his, Uh, chain of office and like his wife and his daughter they both don't want to take it from him and then roper's like "Ah, i'll do it you know it's like no roper you can't do it like you're a jerk um like you're a hothead shut up roper um you're you're a young hothead it's like there's so much uh so much weight in the symbols and there's reality in the symbols that is so cool like i love that i love i love it when people take uh take their symbols as real I think that there's like a cycle of sort of sincerity like that that occurs as well, like everything. And and that would be, you know, that's a huge, huge conversation that we probably will touch on every once in a while here in this maybe, podcast. Maybe but we'll talk about it a little bit more in our little aftermath yeah, episode. The cyclical, the cyclical nature of sincerity. And that would be an amazing title for a book wow. of essays. Yeah. That, that, that'll be like my, <laughs> on my 
I don't know. Yeah. I copyright that. That's mine. Okay, there you it's, go. It's mine. There it's, you go. It's my book of essays. Um, so I think just to sort of wrap us up, I think we can say it in one voice. Is this a dad movie? Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. A hundred percent. A million percent. A thousand percent. Yeah. This is one wait, of the wait, definitions. Wait. Every dad I've ever known has shown it. Wait, hey, Jesse, no, Jesse, what's, Jesse says a hundred million percent. A hundred and one. No. Bezos no. percent. Why is this guy coming back? Yeah, all right. All right. No. Lo- lo- love King Hank the Eighth. <laughs> a Google Plex in one percent. There we go. <laughs> a Google Bezos in one. <laughs> all right. All right. So it's a Google Bezos in one. Um, and then I think we've we've ably laid out why. I think even yeah. Thomas More would, would applaud our our loosey goosey chain. And as we as we come through the fall season into our winter, as we close this podcast out, I just want to ask: When would you show this to your kids? Ooh, it's for me, it's got to be high school. Like, I just don't think before that you're really going to get much out of this. Like, it's all about talking and following a logical argument for most of it. So, yeah, it's kind it's kind of hard to wrap your head around government and lawyers and strong moral stances in the in opposition to that. So, yeah, I, I would say. So with some of my other picks, right, like sometimes like like Lion King, sometimes you want to. For me, I want to expose my kids younger than that. And then as they see it a few more times, like the concepts become easier to manage um, when they fully realize what's going on. Whereas this one, it's like, I don't want you to know these lines before you actually understand what they mean. Sure. So I want them yeah, to be impactful to them. So I say high school. That makes sense. Think? What do you think? I feel like this is like middle school, very early high school, like by freshman year for sure. Or it's a movie that like, the kid gets to sort of like they're up and they're just up and like, you know, family's over or whatever and watching a movie and, and it's late at night and they just happen to be there and they watch the whole thing. Yeah. So, you know, I can see that happening pretty easily. Like, like that happens, right? Sure. That like, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with, with the kid being awake and, and like seeing it and being like, huh, that was interesting. And like finally going to bed with, you know, full of, full of worry about whether or not their father is going to end up, you know, dying for principles. Right. Um, <laughs> You're projecting a lot of anxiety your kids might not have. Yeah, no, probably not. Probably not. Yeah, that's me. What about you, Vito? Uh, I'm gonna. I'm as as I usually do. Uh, I came at this with having watched it with my daughter. Um, <laughs> uh, she watched it. Uh, she was she was kind of in and out. Um, yeah. But she sat down for the the really intense scenes, and she had a lot of questions like, "Who is he? What is yeah. he saying? Why is he saying it? Who are those people?" That's cool. Um, she really wanted to like know what was happening in the movie. And I kind of explained a little bit, but I mostly just let her just see it. Yeah. She was very both shocked and kind of agog at the King Henry screaming scene. Yeah. Because, she, I mean, because you're watching it as a little kid and there's these two men, they're smiling. It's sunny outside. Everyone's laughing. And now this man is screaming his head off. Yeah. Um, he seemed like a really nice guy. Exactly. And like really handsome. Yeah. And he's wearing gold clothes. Yeah. <laughs> Um, Dude, that scene is like seminal for me. Like when yeah. he jumps off of the boat and like gets in the mud, <laughs> and all the courtiers like follow him and they're like laughing, like ha ha. The king is. But weird. then when he just like takes off yeah. and like he and leaves, and the courtiers are trying to catch him. <laughs> like I love that scene so much. It's just like every time it comes back, it's like oh yeah, it's so it gives me warm cozy feelings. Exactly. No. Uh, so I, I'm gonna say like I I think this will be in her life whenever it is that I'm watching it and she wants to watch it. Something I did want to mention that I forgot about, actually, because I've seen this movie so many times, but when I was uh, I, dating back to the nostalgia section real quick, but when I was a kid, 
when I was in, I was older than a lot of my siblings. I'm the, I'm the oldest. And so when they would wake up really early in the morning and they were still babies, I would, I would take them out so my parents could sleep and I would sit down and hold them while they slept. And I would watch a movie. It'd be like four in the morning. And I picked a man for all seasons more than most movies. And I held huh. three siblings while watching this movie. That's kind of awesome. Yeah, it was just sibling after sibling. And I mean, it's a really were, calm they, movie. They were babies. Yeah, then nothing really happens. It's all yeah. talking. So they could sleep through the yeah. whole thing. And I would just I would just hold them. We would just watch the movie. But now it's funny. Just it just came to my mind right now is like, yeah, I've, I've watched this with three of my siblings before they were really conscious. <laughs> That's awesome. So yeah, I think that I, I firmly believe in having this be accessible in my family. And especially for it just being such a favorite of mine, I think my kids are gonna have to get used to uh, me watching it all the time. But I hope that we have really good conversations about it. You know, based on hearing that, maybe, maybe actually like watching this younger would be good, maybe in elementary school, if, if I want them to understand these ideas and really hold them. And if, like, if that's true, and the words like don't just bounce off of them and seem less to them, when they finally understand it here later, then I, I think it's totally worth showing at a younger age too. Not much really happens. It really is just talking. Yeah. Um, there's nothing objectionable in this movie at all. No, no. And it's not that long either. Like you no. can pay attention to it. Yeah. Like the only long part is the opening scene. Yeah. yeah. Which I think which the, we'll the, fast the, forward yeah, all the time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's well, cool. Great. Uh, any, any final wrap ups? I think we should just save for our, our aftermath that we're going to be doing. So next mm-hmm. week, I am excited to to say, I think we, we did maybe mention it on an earlier show, but um, we are a lock for doing To Kill a Mockingbird. To Kill a Mockingbird. So Atticus we're very Finch. excited and nervous. Yeah. And There's we a lot have going on in that. A, a very special a guest. My, a very my special wife, guest. Liz, is ah! going to be on here. And, uh, well, she originally taught a class to eighth graders. So I said, well. It probably wouldn't be too hard since you've done eighth graders to do a dad, which is basically like doing sixth grade. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so he's the one that kind of isn't it harder to drive I don't know. that conversation. So yeah, I'm really excited. I, I think it'll That's be awesome. great. I think she'll do wonderful. I'm I'm so excited to to have someone ask us intelligent questions. That's gonna be great. Because huh? <laughs> honestly, I don't know if anyone could tell, but I have a really hard time coming up with intelligent questions and intelligent answers. So I only have to kind of do one part of that now. Hopefully we don't just like Sound like we're just drooling. Uh, drooling is a hard thing to sound like. I hope you're not drooling so much it's audible, Mike. I've been do? drooling this whole time and nobody said anything. Yeah, so we could hear it, but we figured, you know. Uh, if whatever. you hear a mild, a mild susience in the background, that is the constant drip of Jesse's roll. Uh, but from all of us here at Not Your Father's Movies, I'm Vito. I'm Mike. I'm Jesse. And we are the dad fathers and we've s- we run out of big dad energy. Hey everyone, this is Mike from Not Your Father's Movies. Thank you so much for listening. If you've got any questions on tonight's episode, thoughts on movies that should or should not be in the dad canon, and most importantly, things Vito got wrong, we'd literally love to hear from you. Shoot us an email with anything you got at notyourfathersmovies at gmails.com. That's notyourfathersmovies at gmail.com. And if that's not enough for you and you want more ways to listen to us, reach us, share us, and support us, Check out our website at nyfm.podbean.com. That's nyfm.podbean.com. Shout out to Max Agros for our sick theme music. Thank you, Max, and thank you all again for listening to us. Have a great night.